What another great blessing and opportunity it is to assemble this evening, isn't it? As always, we're so thankful for the presence of every individual, our membership, and the visitors also that have come our way. As we're always, certainly our greatest desire is simply to allow the Word of God to motivate us to worship as He would find pleasing. And we're so thankful for the privilege we have this evening to attempt that very thing. Isn't it great also that we just sang a song that reminded us about the Holy Bible, the book divine. And perhaps as you already have perhaps a copy of it open on your lap, or maybe it's even on a computer. Sometimes we have so easy access that way. I'd like to ask you to ponder with me tonight the first installment in a series of lessons in which we're going to study about the making of the Bible. In many ways, this was prompted by some of the comments that those of us that had the opportunity to attend that men's workshop there in Murfreesboro on the first, I guess it was the second Saturday, in fact, in the month of, of August. But Brother Alan Hires that morning, the first speaker, made a few comments and statements, albeit somewhat brief. But it occurred to me at that point that it really wouldn't be a bad study for any of us to give a more lengthier consideration to the production of that wonderful book we call the Bible. And so tonight we'll simply begin that series, but a number of questions along the way, not only tonight, but in subsequent lessons, we shall consider with, with, some, with some carefulness. In particular, you might notice on that slide, how did the Bible, as you and I now have it, come to be that way? What about the books that are included in it, and while other books of the ancient era were chosen not to be included? Well, about when was the Bible written, and in fact, who were those who labored in its production? You might also notice, once it was completed, how was it transmitted through the ages prior to the printing press being invented? What about the circumstances since that time that have touched the marvelous record that you and I consider the Holy Word of God? We're going to touch all of those in the Sunday night lessons to follow. I hope that you're as excited to consider some of those thoughts as I have been to try and, and produce some of them. As we allow the Word of God to speak, though, tonight, the opening lesson, it seems no other could be chosen than this. What makes this book so special and why have men throughout the ages labored so carefully to safeguard and produce it? Because, of course, it is the book of God. It is sad that continued attacks still are waged against it. And maybe you and I are so well aware of some of those arguments and productions levied against the Word of God. It doesn't change the fact that it is the Word of God, though. And surely tonight, one of the things we'll see is that very attribute. Would you journey with me tonight as we study some of those features, beginning as follows. Looking again at the marvelous Word of God. I began this particular slide here with simply a reflection reminding us about some of the attributes, the characteristics, yea, even the qualities surrounding the notion that attaches to this Word of God. It goes without saying that in terms of the religious messes that so often are regarded in the world around us, no doubt the principal feature is a failure to respect and adhere to that which is the Bible. God has told us what He wants. He has told us what He demands. And in His Word, He informs us of that which we need to live faithfully to His cause. Surely, then, we might note this. If the Bible is claiming to be the Word of God, perhaps we should begin by affirming there's no doubt that there's a God. 
those who thus call attacks by virtue of the fact, well, what proof is there that there is a God such that I might believe this is His Word? In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, near the outset of that noble New Testament epistle, the inspired apostle said powerfully about the evidences for God. In fact, as he spoke with such clearness and with such clarity on that occasion, he spoke about the fact that although God is one whose works testify of Him, it is such that they are without excuse. Isn't that still interesting? You and I have the evidences around us affirming that there's a God. Things just do not occur in an orderly, regular, and considered way without an orderer, a designer, one who orchestrates by virtue of engineering or otherwise those things that are beheld. As Paul addressed that letter to the Romans, isn't that the very point he made? Might we also observe that in addition to that, the psalmist of the Old Testament affirmed it like this in the opening verse of the 19th Psalm. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork. His fingerprints, as we sometimes sing, are, are literally everywhere, aren't they? The fact then that there is a God led Paul to say it like this in Acts 14, 17, as he preached with such boldness there on the first missionary journey. He said, God has not left Himself without witness. Notice a witness then is one who testifies. And there are witnesses that hearken to your mind and mind the reality of the fact there's a God. But not only that, might we say, that God is an all-powerful being. He's all-knowing. Those attributes are highlighted throughout His Word. And as we appreciate the reading of the Bible, we learn to appreciate the one who authored it. No wonder in light of those things... We learn so powerfully that His Word is described in ways, as you'll notice, Psalm 90, verse number 2. From everlasting to everlasting, Thou art God. The human family does not rise above Him. He is the one who is infinite, Psalm 147, verse number 5. He is the one who, in fact, has all authority and power. And we're privileged to walk on His footstool. We're privileged to breathe His air. We're privileged to drink His water, and we're privileged to live each day under the blessed light of His countenance. With a God like that, notice, He has promised then, in light of the evidences of Himself, that He will judge those who have failed to reckon with His existence and those who have even denied it. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse number 10, he wrote, Paul, as he directed that letter to those Corinthian individuals, He's talked about that day of judgment. And he's said that everyone shall give account of himself before God. Notice then in light of the reality of his word, might we then come back and appreciate that it was not the desire of God, as great as he is, to not inform his creation about him. And thus he gave us a word that not only details the nature of him and highlights for us the very manner in which he's to be served, it provides us with the information necessary for a fulfilling and happy life. A life that can be lived in such a way you can depart this earth with peacefulness and with a sense of happiness. No wonder then in the Old and the New Testament, time and again, this book claims to be the Word of God. Time and again, it separates itself from any other production on the earth in terms of books and highlights the fact it is the Word 
of God. Maybe we can begin in 2 Samuel 23. There, as we recollect the famous words of David, he himself affirmed, did he not? The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and His word was in my tongue. As David made reflection of and consideration of those things the Holy Spirit had directed through him, he understood the fact they were the Word of God. That only prompts us to give thought to that text in Jeremiah 22. That bold and very courageous prophet of the Old Testament era, it was he who with great power said, O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. The people of ancient Judah had far too often turned their attention to some other source of authority, some other source of consideration, and yet God through Jeremiah reminded them, earth, not once, not even twice, but three times, hear the word of the Lord. Now that very word of the Lord is that which Jeremiah preached, and it's that which he proclaimed with, un, with, any power, proclaimed with directness and with certain power as to its source. You'll notice that we can even make note of Ezekiel joining in that discussion as well. I've always thought it interesting that the opening chapter in that book, third verse, it says, The word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel. That adverb expressly highlights the fact then that what Ezekiel preached and proclaimed was not human supposition. It was not human opinion. It was not human tradition. What Ezekiel preached was the Word of God. When he labored then down to the river Kibar amongst the captives in Babylon, it was to them he brought the refreshing and often challenging Word of God. One by one, as we turn our attention even into the New Testament, I'm sure it is to the Master Himself, Jesus the Christ, to whom we would ask, what impression did He have of Scripture? All of us remember without any difficulty His approach to that scene of His own temptation. Three times the devil attacked Him, and three times Jesus quoted from the Old Testament verbatim. Isn't it amazing in Matthew 4 verse 4? There he said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Man's very livelihood, the sense of his existence, hinges eternally upon his response to the Word of God. No wonder we treat it with such respectness and with such very special character. As you look near the last part of that slide, not only is the Old Testament regarded as the Word of God, but what about the New those 27 books that close the Holy Word of God. Isn't it amazing that when Paul preached in Acts 13, again on the first missionary journey, he called his auditors on that occasion to recognize the fact that the Word of God was that which they were hearing and that God had revealed that perfect Word. Not only, though, in the book of Acts... I would ask you to quickly notice two other passages, one of which is in 1 Thessalonians. In the 13th verse of chapter 2 of that book, we well remember that Paul lifted so highly a statement of commendation to the church in Thessalonica. In particular, he said, For the which cause also, as he described, they had received something. For the which cause also, thank we God without ceasing. Because when you receive the word of God, you received it not 
in any way of men. But as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually also worketh in you that believe. When the Thessalonians received the preaching of Paul and those other inspired New Testament individuals, they received it as the word of God. That alone is a mighty statement of commendation, isn't it? Isn't it true then that in James 1.18, near the opening of that little New Testament epistle, we read statements like this. Of His own will begat He us with the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. One more time, the word of truth is referenced. Surely in light of the word of truth and in light of those Old Testament statements we've noted earlier, it prompts in us a desire to notice then what else does the Word of God have to say about these things. I'm sure the verse to which we would most readily turn would be that one in 2 Timothy 3. As often as we've heard it, I'm sure it never loses its sense of amazing description. All Scripture is given, Paul wrote, by inspiration of God. Let's pause there for a moment. All Scripture. As we will learn in the subsequent lessons of our series, there are writings described as Scripture and then there are other writings. And those that qualify and those that fit in that category of Scripture, he says, it comes from inspiration of God. It's literally God-breathed. It is that which the very initiative of God has delivered and produced for you and me. Yea, for the benefit of the human family. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Paul, for what purpose? He goes on to identify that that word is thus profitable for a number of things, including instruction in righteousness, for reproof and for correction even. You might notice the very brief and following verse, that the man of God might be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. This word then is able to equip the one who studies and who obeys it in such a way that he or she can be described as perfect. That word means to be mature, to be complete, having been equipped for every good work. Isn't that exciting? Isn't that grand? And isn't that a marvelous blessing? It is with that in mind, you might thus appreciate that this book is so incredibly special. It really is so amazingly special. The Word of God. I would ask you to notice in passing, as such, it is the Word of God that fully expresses to you and me the thoughts of God. We might reflect upon that for just a moment. We've seen so many verses that refer to the Word, Word. And thus the Bible doesn't just contain the sentiments of God. It doesn't contain just the expressed thoughts of God. It's literally the words that God made available. He chose the very words by virtue of the Holy Spirit. I thought that as you and I looked at that, we might well notice some immediate conclusions and consequences of it. Doesn't that directly mean then that the Bible is not to be tampered with? It is not to be handled lightly. It is not to be looked upon with trivialness. It is not to be changed and altered, modified just to suit the fancies, whims, and desires of culture or otherwise. God delivered it. He gave it as He wanted us to have it. And our respect for it leads us then to appreciate the seriousness that must be descriptive of those that translate it and those who desire, in fact, to make it available to others. 
And we'll study that throughout the course of our series, of course. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, as well as Deuteronomy chapter 12, God, even in light of the Old Testament, gave the Israelites the express warning, do not add to it and do not subtract from it. The Bible has 31,102 verses distributed to you and me in a total of 1,189 chapters. And the human family hasn't been given the slightest authority to add one verse to it, to add anything to any chapter, to give consideration or thought to taking anything away from it. We've been given this treasure and what a treasure it is. We sang earlier tonight again about the Holy Bible, the book divine. Perhaps on the front of your Bible it does say the Holy Bible. It does have within it the instructions whereby holiness can be appreciated. As you'll notice furthermore on that slide, isn't it still rather fascinating that those warnings not to tamper with the sacred scriptures are found not just once? In Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6, here in the midst of the Old Testament, the inspired writer one more time affirmed, do not add to his words. One last time, as if we had missed it, in the very last chapter of the Bible, the very last chapter of Revelation, one final time, a warning, don't add anything to the prophecy and don't subtract anything from it either. Oh, how serious then it is to appreciate the safeguarded limitations. It's as if God has erected a fence around the Bible and men are not to add anything to it or to take anything from it. No wonder then the following statements are in order. This Bible that you and I have described so far tonight is then a book not to be read like, for instance, one would just read any other book, a magazine, an article on the, on the internet, perhaps a consideration touching some kind of book that a man may have written. This book God wrote. And as He has provided it to us, it was His intent then that we would appreciate the nature of what it makes available. Didn't Jesus say in John 6 verse 63, The words that I say unto thee, they are spirit and they are life. Reminds us of Psalm 119, verse 105, doesn't it? Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Oh, what guidance it provides. Answers to the greatest and most profound questions of existence. Find the answers God has made available in the Bible. With that in mind, look how we close that slide. How serious then it is that you and I look at the Scriptures with seriousness, not just to read it as a matter of trivia, not just to read it as a matter of otherwise conversation, but to read it with earnest desire to learn what God has revealed and to adhere to it and obey it fully. In 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7, 8, and 9, a rather serious warning is delivered to some, and I would ask you notice who they are. To you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. You and I thus notice that to those who have not obeyed, to those who have neglected, ignored, or otherwise simply disobeyed, what a serious end and conclusion. 
you and I thus, for the remainder of the lesson tonight, will revisit some of the powerful attributes of this book. We've learned one already. It's inspired, meaning God wrote it. What else might we claim and quickly observe, though, about this book? Let's turn to the next slide to see where that leads us. The first consideration is this one. The consideration of accuracy. I've simply entitled it with the word accurate. The opening comments on that slide perhaps lead us to think a little bit about the following. We know what a blessing it is to be able to read. We teach our youngsters from an early age how to read, and we certainly are excited on the day when they've developed a proficiency in that activity. One of the reasons, though, a godly parent is so excited when a child learns to read is that child can read the Bible. He or she can appreciate the message of God directed to him or to her. Tonight, why don't you and I think for a moment then about the specifics and the words that are found in that Bible under the banner of the word accuracy. The Holy Word of God is an accurate volume, isn't it? Now, the writings of men may have mistakes in it, and the writings of men may have within it discrepancies, uncertainties, or otherwise problems that would be regarded as inaccuracies. Sometimes we recognize in, in universities and in colleges, you'll find a mistake occasionally. The author simply made a mistake. You write him about it, ask, and he'll freely admit, I just made a mistake. I wrote the equation incorrectly. When we open the pages of the book of God, we might then reasonably ask, how sure can I be that what I'm reading is accurate? What if it's riddled with mistakes and errors? Certainly if it were, we would have no reason to trust it. Many times throughout the ages, there have been those who have asserted, well, the Bible is filled with mistakes. May I submit that by itself could be a lengthy study to look at some of the assertions and some of the accusations. How did they turn up, I wonder? There have been times there have been assertions about geographic references, archaeological references, civil references, national references, and at times, sometimes individuals have accused, well, that's not right. Only sometime later for the archaeologist spade to confirm what the Bible had said all along or sometime later for additional research or proper interpretation to reveal the fact that the Holy Word of God never had been wrong to start with. Surely, that allows us to appreciate some of these statements. We learned a moment ago that God is its author. It's called the Word of God so many times. Question, is God always true? We know that He is. Titus 1 verse 2 expressly says God cannot lie. It is impossible for Him to lie. He fully upholds and pursues in every way the truth. And therefore, if the Bible is His book, the Bible should also have the hallmark characteristic of accuracy. It should have within it no mistakes, no deceptions, no misleading statements. Not only that, you'll notice, we have so many times... References in both the Old and New Testaments along the lines of Psalm 119, verse 128. 
I would ask you to notice the powerful refrain that the inspired writer placed within that verse. Therefore, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. Now, the inspired writer said, all thy precepts concerning all things are right. So if that statement is in fact accurate, that means then literally all 31,102 verses contain what God had wished it to be and therefore it would be an accurate description and it would bring forth the reality of what God wished to reveal. Accuracy. Not only that passage, you might notice in John 17, 17, Jesus affirmed, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. The Son of God on that occasion offered in majestic statement of adoration and prayer to God, Thy word is true. Didn't Peter acclaim the same in 1 Peter 1.22? The accuracy and truthfulness of the word of God. No wonder it's so special. Maybe the last thought on that slide. Doesn't all of that prompt within us a heightened understanding of the grandeur of Paul's question? What saith the Scripture? In the midst of that Roman letter, Romans 4 verse 3, Paul was battered by a number of questions that the Romans had asserted to him. And oftentimes their approaches in the era of that day had turned to a number of other sources. Paul said, never may it so, what saith the Scripture? There's where we look for the answers. There's where we look for the guidance. And there's where we look for the message of God. Not only accuracy, but what else might we observe? I would ask you to consider this little statement. I've put it beneath the banner of authoritative. The authoritative character of the Bible. When we open things that, again, men have written, sometimes we have every right to be skeptical, every right to distrust what was written in that volume due to perhaps our knowledge of the failures of the author, due perhaps to our knowledge that the author was not fully equipped to write concerning the matter, or perhaps as we read that we understand it's nonsensical. There are features of that writing that clearly indicate it is not an authoritative document. When we open this book, none of those shortcomings are true, are they? This book has all the hallmarks of being authoritative. I've only chosen a few verses, but I would ask you to begin with this one in Hebrews 4.12. For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Two adjectives the inspired writer chose. The Word of God is quick. That means it's living. And it's powerful. Those two coupled together give us a description of the amazing features of the Word of God. You'll notice so powerful is it, it's even able to divide between soul and spirit. Sometimes the human family struggles to understand the differences. The Word of God details it. No wonder in light of those things, we notice that authoritative character expressed in sometimes simple ways. How do I become a Christian? Some in our world might say, I think you need to do this. I suppose you ought to do that. I've heard my preacher say this is appropriate. In light of the Bible, there's no reason for I suppose, I think, I guess, I wonder, I surmise. 
God says, here's what you have to do. And you and I with authority can rest upon a thus saith the Lord and claim a person must believe in Jesus as the Son of God, John 8, 21 to 24. A person must repent of his sins, Acts 2, 38. A person must confess the sweet name of Jesus as the Son of God, Romans 10, verse 10. A person must be baptized for the remission of sins. We notice highlighted in Mark 16, 16, 1 Peter 3, 21, and Romans 6, verses 3 through 5. We aren't left to wonder about those things, and aren't we thankful for the authoritative Bible? You'll notice in addition to that, when the Bible then presents the will of God concerning an issue, that closes it. There's no longer reason to wonder, to doubt, to guess. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Psalm 119, verse number 89. After considering at least briefly the accuracy and the authoritative nature of the Word of God, doesn't it challenge us to give some thought to our reaction to it? Oh, how love I thy law, it is my meditation all the day. You and I should have such a keen respect for the Bible, such a concerted desire to know what it says and to implement it in our life. I've used the word love to describe that. Because again, the Scriptures use it. I just quoted from Psalm 119, verse 97, but oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. You might notice some 43 verses later in Psalm 119, verse number 40. One more description about our reaction to the Word of God. Thy servant loveth it. I might ask all of us a question, including myself. How much do I love the Bible? How much do you love it? Are you and I like Job, who in Job 23, 12, he himself could say, I have treasured his word more than my necessary food. Job looked upon the word of God more significantly, more important, and more essential than even the food he ate at a common table. May you and I love it as much. After all, we do realize as that slide comes to the bottom, there are so many descriptions challenging us with the way noble characters in days gone by looked upon the Bible. They loved it. They had a desire for it. They longed after it. Maybe that last statement in Acts 17:11 helps us appreciate the sweetness with which we shall consider it again. The times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent because He hath appointed a day into which he would judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. That's verses 30 and 31 of Acts chapter 17. And it brings us to appreciate the sweet description of those in Acts 17 who themselves were described like this. They were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily whether those things were so. That's a great description, isn't it? As we think about loving it, coming to the final section of our lesson tonight, I might ask you to notice one final description which will in some ways prompt us to the lesson coming next Sunday evening. We've learned tonight about the accuracy of the Word of God.
that we can fully have confidence and trust that what it says is the Word of God. And furthermore, we've described the authoritative nature with which it presents the things of God. That reminds us immediately of how they looked upon the preaching of Jesus. He preached not as the scribes, but as one having authority, Acts 7, 20, or rather Matthew 7, 29. And so when you and I use the Scriptures, we too with confidence can do so. But all of that rides upon the appreciations that we now observe with these simple little facts. When we open that Bible, we notice 66 individual books comprise it. Why aren't there fewer? Why aren't there more? We'll look at that in subsequent lessons. But in addition, as we look at the 66 books with which we are blessed, we notice about 32 men wrote the Old Testament books and 8 wrote the New bringing us to a total of roughly 40 men comprising, writing the fullness of these 66 books. And I would ask you to notice, it wasn't written overnight. It wasn't even written in one year, but rather over a much more extended period of time as God directed individuals to put into words, into paper, if you please, the very nature of the word He wished to deliver. I've simply made these brief comments. As near as we're able to tell, many of the Old Testament books do not date themselves in the sense that we can pinpoint with express nature the year in which it was written. However, the events detailed in it usually will give a strong clue of roughly the time period. It would seem that about 1,050 years is the sum total of the years taken to write the Old Testament from the time the first one was written until the time the last one was written. But as we turn to the New Testament, it's a much briefer amount of time, only about 50 years from when the first one was written until the final one. Adding those two together, it brings us, you'll notice, to around, you can well tell, some 1,100 years or so. But then... There's a gap between when the Old Testament was completed and when the New Testament was begun of around 500 years. And so that brings to our total roughly between 15 and 1600 years from the first book in the Old Testament to the last book in the New. During that time, what a great blessing it was for God to reveal from heaven the will of God Himself. I hope we look forward to a consideration over the next few Sunday evenings about the nature of how the Bible was made. We've prompted our study tonight by revisiting just how significant it is. Are you a faithful Christian this evening? Have you given your life in humble submission to the teachings of the Bible? Do you follow it with devotion and with great intrigue day by day? If you do, you know what a blessing it is, and no doubt we're all so thankful for it. But certainly this is a convenient time. And if there might be someone in the audience whose life is not in compliance with the Bible, maybe you've never attended in fullness to the old gospel plan of salvation. Maybe you haven't worshipped in accordance to that which God has delivered in the book to be acceptable worship. It is true, isn't it, from Matthew 15, that anything that is done in worship that He hadn't authorized is not accepted. That alone prompts us to then ask, if you need to become a Christian tonight, we'd be delighted to be of assistance to you. That plan of salvation noted earlier, to believe in Jesus, to repent of your sins, to confess His name and to be baptized, and then to live faithfully till death. 
Maybe you have become a Christian, but you've strayed away from the essence of faithfulness. You've allowed distractions and you've allowed yourself to become focused upon things other than the truth of God. And if so, why not come back tonight to your first love? If we could pray to God on your behalf, we'd be so excited to do it and thankful for the privilege. If we could help you tonight in any of these ways, won't you come even now while together we stand and sing the chosen song?